Hello and welcome back to Emerge. So this episode is a special one. It is carrying forward some of the terms and ideas that we explored last week in my conversation with Daniel Schmachtenberger. And if you really want to get the most from this conversation, I, I suggest that you go back and listen to that episode, last week's episode, if you haven't already. So this week I'm speaking with Christopher Life, the founder of a new American political party. It's called One Nation. And in my estimation, it, it more so than any other political organization that I'm aware of, at least in America, is doing things and operating according to the vision and values that are a part of what goes into this podcast project. And so I find it really exciting, uh, the project to be really exciting. Um, and I also want to add a little bit uh, in the intro in service of disclosure. So I, in fact, worked with One Nation uh, during the early stages of the project's development. I no longer have much day-to-day -day involvement uh, with the project, although I still help out occasionally and am very much rooting for its success. I also want to say that at one point in the interview, I suggest that we don't really see much vision uh, coming from mainstream politicians. I want to say that I am, in fact, a big supporter of Andrew Yang. I've donated to his campaign and spread some of his views on Twitter. Uh, and so while I don't see Andrew holding quite as revolutionary a perspective as One Nation does, I do still think he is bringing you know, very good things into the political discourse. And I'm really happy to see him uh, getting the momentum he has been. Finally, uh, next week, I'll be attending Joe Brewer's Managing Planetary Collapse Workshop in Costa Rica, assuming that the planes work as advertised. So there won't be a new episode of the show next Monday. I will be back the week after, hopefully with some stories to share about my time at the workshop. Okay, without further ado, here is Christopher Life on Emerge. The Emerge podcast is proud to be sponsored by the Monastic Academy for the Preservation of Life on Earth. The Monastic Academy, located in Lowell, Vermont, is a training center dedicated to the amplification of human maturity in the age of the Anthropocene. The Academy trains its participants through a unique combination of rigorous contemplative training, project-based learning, and a disciplined commitment to ethical behavior, all held in the context of deep community. The Monastic Academy is currently accepting applications for the Apprenticeship Program. This program, lasting two or three months, includes silent retreats, daily meditation instruction, and regular authentic relating practices. This program is free. Other ways to participate include daily visits, week-long retreats, or, if you can work remotely, joining the Academy through the co-working program, allowing you to deepen your practice while keeping your job. For more information, you can go to www.monasticacademy.com.
Welcome back to Emerge. Today on the show, I am pleased to be joined by Christopher Life. Christopher is the founder of One Nation, a new American political party. You heard that right, a new American political party. And so in this conversation, uh, we're going to explore what One Nation is. And uh, I'll just say from the outset, part of the reason I was able to kind of see what I think, at least from my perspective, what One Nation is attempting to do is because of all the conversations I've had on this podcast, there's so many symmetries, similarities, parallels, resonances in what is being attempted with this project and to the kind of world that so many of the people I speak with and I myself feel sort of needs to be brought into reality. And so, Christopher, it's a real joy to have you on the show with us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Daniel. Cool. Yeah. And so, um, you know, uh, I know from from my involvement with One Nation, it's uh, you you say I'm you know starting a new political party, and immediately you get the response like, "What? What do you mean? Like, what? What exactly are you doing? Like, what? Tell me, tell me more." And so, I, I I'm hoping that we can kind of recreate that sort of um, elevator pitch esque response that you might give if you encountered somebody and you told them, "Hey, I'm I'm starting a new political party." Uh, and they say, well, tell me more. Uh, what would you, what, what do you typically say to those people? Well, let me turn this back on you for just a second, because I know you have quite a bit of experience uh, with Occupy movement, you know, a good number of years ago. And um, I would love to ask you, what did you see as the fail points of why we didn't see that the Occupy movement didn't translate into some massive transformation for society, despite the fact that you had a whole lot of people that were very activated. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were a lot of different points The the ones that come to mind is, uh, you know, there was in the sort of ideology that was motivating Occupy, there was still, um, some division, right? It was 99% against the 1%. And so it was almost there. But even that little bit of division, I think, created uh, some energetics that just couldn't quite reach escape velocity in terms of transformation. And then the other piece was, I think we just didn't appreciate uh, how difficult it is to scale processes like consensus-based decision-making. I mean, we're all very young. And, uh, you know, something that works when there's 15 people at times, uh, just when you get 50 people, just breaks. And I don't think we were really ready to uh, account for that issue of scale. Those are just, you know, two things. There's also repression by the police and all kinds of, you know, our messaging was <laughs> a mess and very uh, fractured and things like that. But yeah, those that's what comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, there's a chart that Bill Moyer, um, a political analyst, has made um, that looks at the eight stages of a typical social transformation. Mm-hmm. And it's a very useful chart to look at. If you actually just Google Bill Moyer, eight stages of social transformation, you'll, you'll see it. And um, it basically shows that social transformations go through this very predictable arc, these very predictable eight stages. And there's a very predictable public response at each stage. And basically in the first three stages, um, the public doesn't even know about the issue. You know, the public's not talking about the issue. Even the people that are suffering from the issue 
might not even realize that it's an issue. They just like accepted that that's the way the world is. And then in the first three stages, people start to realize, hey, there's like, there's an issue here. And then at stage four, there's a major uh, moment of activation where public awareness around the issue goes from like 20% to like 90%. And you can see this tracked across every major social transformation of our, um, you know, last couple hundred years in America. And when I look at all that and I look at Occupy, I feel that Occupy represents stage four in this typical arc. But instead of the issue being women's suffrage or gay marriage or civil rights or marijuana or any of these like issue specific things, that what we're talking about in this situation is actually the system itself. So the system itself is in the crosshairs of this latest social transformation. Um, and when I say the system, that could mean a lot of things. And I mean all those things simultaneously. But if I would point to one of the specific things that represents, it's actually the existing two-party system that has basically hegemonic control um, as a as a, as a kind of duopoly. And I use that as a technical term, not like like a derogatory term. Like it's, it's very technically a duopoly. Um, and it has full, basically hegemonic control over who gets access to positions of national leadership for the most part. And that's the system that is being looked at for this latest social transformation. And what happens in phase four is there's a huge activation and everyone kind of becomes aware. Um, but nobody's got generative ideas. They're all kind of oppositional based ideas. And so then you have opposite, you have awareness of the issue increases and opposition of the, of the issue increases, but, um, support of an alternative issue doesn't come online until phase seven. In fact, phase five and phase six of this chart shows that everybody thinks that the activists failed because nothing changed. But what you don't see on the surface is that the oppositional energy is now grounding and preparing itself to be a generative alternative, which Mm. you need to build stuff and build systems and build structures and build capacities and build vision and build mission and build teams. And you have to do so much in order for something to be generative, right? Being oppositional, that can be a flash to pan. You can put a million people in the street. Um, but to be truly generative is um, you don't just put a million people in a street to be generative. It, you have to grow something that has very specific capacities. So um, what I see one nation ultimately being is it's, is it's being this third line on this, on this model, right? The first line is mapping public awareness of an issue. The next line maps public opposition to the issue, which is correlated to the public awareness but in this third line that kind of sneaks down the bottom is public support of an alternative. Mm-hmm. And then this thing jacks up in phase seven because you have basically this large discrepancy between 90% of America know this is an issue and are opposed to it, but nobody's doing anything about it. So when this alternative comes onto the scene, it can be able to receive a huge amount of energy and then move from being, um, there, there being no alternative to there being an alternative to that alternative being successful. That can go very, very quickly because basically the whole 
field is set up for that. <clears throat> and so I, I see One Nation as a or the generative response to the now well-known realization that our political system's broken, that our two-party system's broken, that um, we've uh, allowed very deep ulterior motives to basically run our nation, um, run our states, run our local governments. Um, and now One Nation becomes a context for us to organize at a national scale and to translate all that oppositional energy into actual generative energy. Um, I've been reflecting a lot on um, all the corruption in the government and that it's led me to a very um, uh, unlikely, positive, hopeful conclusion. And what I mean by that is if you have all these different people that are being sculpted by ulterior motives, by quote unquote, kind of power elite or power interests or kind of long-term strategies for private gain and using the country to be able to result in private gain at the detriment of people, at the detriment of our ecology. Um, if you If you drill into that, you see that what those interests use to control the country is people. And then they typically create systems of blackmail or control or coercion to make sure that the people that are in these positions of elected leadership um, do their will, right? That's kind mm -hmm. of, I think mm -hmm. you're, you're familiar with this arc and I can go to the details. Yeah. Probably a lot of your listeners are kind of getting this arc, but, but what's inside of that, the reason there's so much coercion and blackmail and control is because these positions of national leadership are actually incredibly powerful. Hmm. So the positions of being a governor or being a senator or being a congressional rep or being a president or being a mayor, like they're actually very powerful positions. That's why there's so much coercion and control and blackmail put on to getting people in those positions and then controlling them once they're in those positions and that this predictable two-party system left and right basically kind of manages that process because elected positions in America are that powerful. And so that's kind of what I've been musing on lately and obviously for, for years is what would it really look like for us to create a platform that millions of Americans who are either politically active as independents, but um, aren't organized collectively, or are fully disengaged from politics because there's been nothing there that's been able to inspire them, or that they're the rising generation and they haven't yet even got involved with politics. Mm -hmm. What if you create a space for, for, for literally millions of those Americans to be able to come together and say, hmm, what if we actually became the mayors and the governor and the congressional reps, but 100% outside of this two-party system. Um, what would be possible? And what would be possible if we did that knowing what we know now, right? Because Green Party and Libertarian Party tried to organize uh, several decades ago to, to fulfill some degree of this, um, but that was pre 
millennials. It was pre all of our technological capacities. It was pre us being deeply connected online, deeply connected in other ways. And it was pre us having all the realizations that we have that we're actually at a precipice of a phase change Mm -hmm. in humanity. And again, based upon a lot of the topics that come on your podcast, a phase change that could be incredibly destructive, potentially very generative, potentially some combination of the two, but there's a pretty strong consensus that things are about to become radically different. And so what if we organized not with the mentality that we're just going to try and make some incremental changes, but actually realizing that we are at the top of a roller coaster that's about to fling us into this deep, unprecedented, mysterious, radical, transformational couple decades. And we said, great, we know that's where we're heading. And we're going to steward our cities and our states and our nation from that vantage point. And we're going to leverage the access to public budgets and policy making and leadership of military and leadership of police and leadership of the judicial process to be able to support that radical transformation on all fronts of society. Mm. Um, so that's, that kind of starts to approach what one nation is. If I just kind of bring a couple other pieces of quote unquote, the elevator pitch, um, it's a grounding rod for a lot of very aligned, but fully disconnected movements, right? Mm. So right now you might look at say, okay, the people that really care about soil regeneration and the people that really care about helping us to heal from childhood trauma or intergenerational trauma, there's nothing that really puts those two groups on the same team. So Mm. they might not even perceive themselves in the same team, but, but they're actually holding very, very important pieces of the regeneration of our world, our humanity, our ecology, and everything else. And you also might take somebody who's innovating new kind of blockchain governance technologies and somebody else who's out there cleaning up the islands of trash in the Pacific Ocean and not put them on the same team because they're doing such different things. But but one nation actually as a political vehicle and politics by its very nature is cross sectoral, right? It's the place where economics and ecology and social issues all intersect. So by that very nature, it wraps this very wide container that can help to create unity and shared coordination amongst a very different movements that are all actually very aligned and gearing towards the same possible outcome. And then using the position, the positions that we attain through electoral activities to then start to uh, apply budgets and policies to those regenerative innovations, whether it's soil or trauma or new digital governance solutions or um, whatever other example I just gave. And so you can start to see that it's like, oh, it's, it's like this grounding rod that can both bring a lot of the movements together, but then precipitate like real public tangible um, results to help these innovations to scale. 
right? Because government itself is an administrative capacity. And so if we have some new solution, um, government is a phenomenal way to be able to scale that times thousands of municipalities simultaneously because there's administrative capacities in place, there's budgets in place, and all you really need is clarity on innovation and political leadership will. And if you have those things, then you can start to actually use government to help to regenerate society um, and ecology. If, if you're still trying to work inside the two-party system and there is such deep historic ulterior motives and incumbent power interests, then it is fundamentally impossible because trying to do this type of work while being inside that system, um, that's going to be, you know, nails on the chalkboard to, to that system. But if you're organized politically outside of that system, then, um, then you're wide open to be able to actually um, bring governments into alignment the very best that you can um, with the transformational times ahead. And it, it's, it's more tricky at national scales, but doable, but it's really, really doable at a, at a local scale. I mean, you could have um, three or four people that get into key positions in a city or even a small town and then use the $50 million budget of that city or $400 million budget of that city to start doing very radical, innovative things and then use the, the, the doing of that in government as further credibility of the innovations themselves. Nice. Yeah. And, and so you named two kind of key premises. One, uh, that the system itself right now is broken. And two, that we're on the precipice of some kind of fundamental phase change. And, and I think both of these premises are very familiar to listeners of this podcast. And so I think you're probably, folks are listening and saying, yeah, like I agree with that. Um, what I think I would like to explore more with you is sort of like, um, what is the vision? What's the solution? Like, how do we start to like constellate how we think about and move into a more generative uh, idea building kind of space together? Like what, how do we, how do we orient? Um, what are the mm -hmm. kind of primary uh, pieces of that vision in your mind? Well, I think the first one is uh, generativity itself. Right. So that that moving from our energy and our awareness from being um, angry or oppositional or complaining or just pointing out the problem. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just part of the process. But once we do enough of that, then we need to start moving our energy towards what can we build? What can we do? What can we create? So checking in first, like, you know, am I still in the shaking my fist at the sky mode or mm -hmm. I'm in a, am I in the like, you know, pen to paper and hammer to nail mode? So getting into generativity, I think first and foremost is, is critical. And then getting into generativity that's not based in polarization, I think is probably the next piece. So as you mentioned or alluded to at the beginning, you know, One Nation is, um, is very unique as a political vehicle because there's not an other. There's not a bad guy. There's not the, um, the group that we want to, kill or destroy or imprison or take over or replace at all. Um, <clears throat> we, we do want to do that from a generational standpoint, but that actually kind of goes well with like how biology works that like an older generation mm -hmm. passes away and a new generation kind of moves up into taking that space. 
So One Nation is definitely focused on um, empowering the rising generation. So as millennials, as we move up through the next couple of decades, that we're well positioned to um, receive that th those capacities that are available to us through the governments that have been created. And I think that's probably the next piece to your question is, um, is if, if you, if you're an oppositional framework, then you say, Oh, government is bad and government's broken and, um, <clears throat> just all that kind of thing. But if you're generative, then you don't think that way. Everything becomes an ingredient to mm. creation, everything, right? So, and, and anything that you're judging is bad or wrong or evil, you, all that you've done is you've put it outside the domain of what you can use as part of your creative process. So you want, as a, as a creator, you want everything inside that domain. So then you want to stay curious and open to everything. Um, so when I stay curious and open to everything, I don't see government as bad or wrong or broken. I see the, the two party system as not working for, as, 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 as objectively um, more serving ulterior motives of selfishness than public benefit. So I can say that objectively, but I, I don't see that like the government is wrong or broken. I see that it's my inheritance. Mm. So I see that this, whether, you know, inheritance is typically used like, okay, my dad made a bunch of money and so he's dying. And now he gives me that money. But inheritance is basically whatever the, 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 the generations that have gone before have created that then after they are deceased must be stewarded by someone else. Right. And so that can be wealth. It can be a company, but if you go, if you stretch your imagination more broadly, it goes to industries, right? So our gener so, so the media industry is our inheritance. The energy industry is our inheritance. Um, mm. These are all our inheritances. And then therefore the government itself is kind of this like ultimate inheritance. It's this like really big mechanical system and machine that our ancestors have built. And many of the people that have built that whether you're talking about at a national level, state level, or local level, there's been a lot of really good intention built between like why it's built this way and how it's built and how it's really an administrative backbone for various levels and scales of society. Um, so, so we either reject it kind of like a snooty teenager who says, I hate you, dad. I'm just going to go live in Bali you know, yeah. keep your, I don't want your money, right? That happens. Um, or we can say, well, what would happen for me to step up and say whether or not I'm angry with what this previous generation has done, right? Um, and the decision they've made, they're still on their way to, to retirement, aging and death. And so whether we like it or not, it's our inheritance, every problem, every solution, every system, every structure. And so what can I do to be prepared to inherit what's being passed down extremely well, like the city of Boulder, for example, that's part of our inheritance, right? Hmm. The city of New York, San Diego County, like these are our inheritance. And, and how can I make sure that when they get passed down, I can step up and I can receive that inheritance and I, and I know how to receive it. And I know how to steward it well. So I, I think that's kind of 
I'm not sure how well I answered your last question, but I think that's one of the fundamental things that we're attempting to do here is to prepare the rising generation to be ready to receive the inheritance of government. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's actually really profound. You know, I, I often reflect that like one of the ways that the current system sort of uh, disincentivizes participation is through s- disempowerment, right? And that yeah. often begins just on almost like a visionary level. Like it, it, there isn't this sense of like that that's really woven deeply into the political process that this really is our country. Like we have a right to choose how it gets handled, how how this all unfolds, and that 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 seemingly isn't really uh, a part of most people's relationship with the political. Uh, and, and I think that the, the, the two parties actually like want it that way. They, they, they keep it that way and they, they prefer it to be that way because then it makes it easier for them to hold on to the power they do have. Yeah. I, I, I resonate with that, you know, and there's a quote, I don't remember who it was, but it was basically along the lines of, um, you know, people don't know how powerful they are. And this is relative to being citizens of the Republic. But when they know how powerful they are, there's nothing that can stop them. Um, and that, that's what I'm trying to point to. And that's what you're trying to point to, right? It's like this narrative of disempowerment is one of the strongest tools that the incumbent power interests have to maintain their status quo. Um, and so if we break that in ourselves and we don't give in to that narrative of disempowerment, then, um, I do think that that is step one Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and so, and it's, so for me that that's like, yeah, that's a kind of precondition to participate in what you're gesturing towards with one nation. I, I think though, that part of what, uh, keeps people locked in that state of relative disempowerment is like a sense that there's no alternative, right? They see left and right just kind of bickering as we fall off the side of the cliff that's mm-hmm. coming up. Totally. And that's all kind of cliffs. like the only... All like yeah, that's, cliffs. <laughs> yeah, over and over again. And, and that's really all they see, right? And so there isn't this articulation of a positive other future possibility uh, coming from anywhere in the political scene. And, and so... I know that you, you know, uh, worked a lot, studied a lot with like Daniel Schmachtenberger, who I think has a, a very clear articulation, but I'd be, I'd be curious to hear like what, you know, what is alive for you and kind of saying like, look, if we empower ourselves, like we can actually fight for X and X is something worth fighting for. Right. What is X in that equation? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. <clears throat> well, to, to go back just a little bit, something that was coming up for me as you were sharing um, there's these, uh, there's the grieving process, right? So the standard grieving process has the different stages and the first couple stages, I'm not technically versed, I'm not looking at it right now, but there's, you know, there's denial, you know, and there's anger and there's rejection and there's depression. And then ultimately there's acceptance, right? So I think what, what's really important is that we go through all of these processes, right? So, so at the level of, ecological systems, we go through those processes and grieve what's happened and grieve 
some of the inevitability of what seems to be happening. Um, at the level of our financial systems, you look at fractional reserve banking and you look at how the U.S. dollar's working and you're like, oh, shoot, there's going to be some massive financial collapse coming down the pipeline. And, oh, I'm so pissed that the previous generations made all these selfish decisions that were so short-sighted and yada, yada, yada. <clears throat> and, and, and all these different aspects of systems collapse, um, systems failure, um, I, I think we need to go through these healthy stages of the grieving process um, and, and kind of get on with that because what's on the other side of getting on with that grieving process is acceptance. And once you've accepted these aspects of systems collapse, um, then you're still here, right? You're still breathing <laughs> you still wake up. There's still like the sun comes up, the sun goes down. You know, that, that's an illusion, I guess, right? The earth is spinning, but it appears <laughs> like the sun comes up. It appears like the sun goes down. You know, and, 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 and we're still like eating and we still like, they're still really lovely people and, and it still feels really nice to take an inhale. So it's like, like life is still happening on the other side of going through the emotional and psychological processes of accepting what seems to be the, the expressing and imminent expressions of systems collapse. Mm. So, so, so that then that's the pure space for generativity to come from. It's like, okay, great. Well, if these things are going to happen to some degree, how am I either going to go out fighting or in that one in a million chance do something awesome and like mm. radical that is only able to occur in this narrow context of everybody else realizing that the systems collapse is, is inevitable. So it's like, is that, is this creating a window for some type of, really deep, true, radical, grounded, generative phase change transformation that moves us more towards utopia than dystopia. Mm. I like to believe there's a window there, whether that's a 1% or a 0.1% or a, you know, whatever that tiny window is, it's like, great. Like if you've accepted systems collapse, then why not go all in for that window of the chance that we can redirect the chaos into generativity and pull ourselves up before we crash, right? So, so that's kind of just this overarching gestalt of, of, of how to hold it. And from that place, yeah, it's, <clears throat> the objectives are um, to, to usher in a fundamental phase change for humanity through stewardship of our governance structures. And that phase change, I think is a phase. If you look at the system of society, blah, 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 you see that there's the political system and there's a lot of ways that it sucks, um, but you don't change the political system because the economic system is, is stronger than the political system. So the economic system is always gonna pull the political system out of the alignment of serving the public in service to private interests, but you don't just tweak the economic system because there's something that's deeper than that. That's actually driving the economic system. And that's our culture. That's us. That's you and me. That's mm -hmm. everybody. It's what we care about. It's the decisions that we make. It's what we value. It's what we prioritize. It's our individual and it's our collective narratives. Like that's at the center. And this is one thing that Daniel Schmachtenberger has really helped me to understand. And he's been a, a very close mentor for the last eight years of my life, which I feel very blessed uh, yeah. to have had that 
to have that deep relationship with him. Um, and so he's helped me to realize that it's, it's actually this, it's this cultural issue. And, and at the, and, and if you take that and you drill that all the way into the center of the cultural issue, um, there's this like switch in this like dark room on the <laughs> interior of the center of the center of the center of the issue. And there's a switch down there and, and you have win lose and win win. Hmm. And, and I think we'll need to unpack this a bit more, but when you hmm. flip that switch, then it starts to re-illuminate and reanimate every aspect of culture. And then therefore every aspect of economics and therefore every aspect of political and governance systems. Hmm. And when we make the shift from living as win-lose people and win-lose companies and win-lose nation to all win people and all win companies and all win nation, then what you've done is you've reappropriated the, 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 the power of human computation mm. from how do I win to how does everyone win? Mm. So it's the same it's the same biological, biologic, neurological processing and computation capacity, but it's just redirected. And so if we can end up with um, millions of leaders of government and society and um, business that have flipped this switch fundamentally, I believe that that is the X that you were talking about, mm. that that is what pulls us up. And we, and we, and we go through the individual transformation to move from win, lose to all win. And then we transform every sector and every player in every sector at all scales, nationally and internationally, as we, rise into greater power capacity and influence as a new generation of all win leaders in the world. And I believe that that's the thing that will enable all of the technological transformations to occur in the best way possible. It will enable all of the transformations of social systems to occur in the best way possible. It will allow our economic systems and players to evolve in the best way possible. It will enable us to provide appropriate prioritization on ecological regeneration as possible. It will enable us the sophistication and creativity and generation of thinking to mm. be able to contemplate and well the complexities of the massive challenges and opportunities of our generation. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and as Daniel Schmachtenberger is so clear in articulating that win-lose game dynamic is essentially one of the key generator functions of what is sending our civilization uh, on this journey to the precipice. And so uh, there's something really elegant about positioning a political party as uh, as, as the kind of, it's kind of like the, the shot that needs to be taken on the Death Star is, yeah, is switching 
is, is flipping the switch in as many places, as many minds, as many systems as possible. And uh, I, I, I guess maybe if we can um, unpack that a little bit, because you know, I, I know this sort of all-win vernacular. You're, you're very familiar with it, but I imagine some listeners may not be. So, uh, can you can you kind of like unpack this distinction between win-lose and all-win? Um, and then maybe we can uh, play with it, apply it, and just sort of explore it for a little bit. Because I think, as you say, it's, it's just so centrally important to everything that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, kind of a cheeky recap on anthropology for the last uh, 100,000 years. Um, you know, go back 100,000 years ago, we lived in tribes, and the basic unit of human survival was the tribe, right? Not It wasn't like mom and dad and babies, you know, it wasn't like the nuclear family and it wasn't like an individual. It was the, the tribe was the unit of survival and a tribe with 60, 70, hundred, 150 people could like deal with living in nature and processing all of the food requirements and all of the protection requirements and all of the child rearing requirements, like the whole thing. Right. So if a tribe is at the fundamental unit of society, then we need a psychotechnology um, that enables us to create a boundary around that thing, right? Like any living system needs a boundary. The human body has the skin, the cell has a cell wall. So the, the basic kind of one of the basic boundaries of the tribe was this notion of, of, of us versus them. So this is basically a psychotechnology, which is a, a software system basically that runs the brain. And Who's the us is the people that we take care of and who's the them are the people that we don't take care of and that we could potentially um, kill or um, allow to be abused um, if that was needed for the us to be able to survive. Mm -hmm. So now you've got this, this boundary around the tribe, us versus them, and that generates win-lose, right? We win, they lose. And that boundary um, enables us to survive. And when we moved into agrarian lifestyle and and civilization, then that win-lose us versus them just kind of augmented in scale, you know, and then we had standing armies. And then the civilizations that did us them well destroyed the civilizations that didn't, right? So if you're more of an empathetic kind of more of a maternal civilization, you're like, oh, but everyone's worthy of love. Then you are soon to find yourself enslaved or murdered by the civilizations that were willing to create a group called other and then objectify that group and then inflict suffering or death upon that group in service to the us. Mm-hmm. So us versus them, which precipitates a win-lose mentality, has been an advantageous survival psychotechnology or adaptive system inside of our own brains um, all the way through history. And that moved all the way up until nation states. And it basically has moved all the way up until the present day. Um, However, the environment itself can shift. And when the environment shifts, then what was an adaptive system or adaptive um, process can become maladaptive, right? And so just come with me real quick, go back to single cells in the ocean, 
you know, there was no multicell organisms and single cells basically filled up the oceans and they were excreting this thing called oxygen, right? It was their excrement and it was um, toxic to the single cell organisms. And so they filled up the whole atmosphere with, um, <clears throat> with oxygen and this was their metabolic process. And so the metabolic process that worked for single cell organisms quickly became maladaptive when they had filled up the entire atmosphere with their own toxin. And so as the oxygen levels increased in the atmosphere, then these single cells were faced with basically extinction, which had been the extinction of life on earth. But that forced this transformation from single cell to multi-cell organization organisms. And that then became the new adaptive system that was now able to respirate oxygen. And so this environmental shift enabled and required and created the pressure for a leap in evolution to occur. Okay. So now come back with me to this moment in time when lose right, which we can call kind of like metaphorically excreting oxygen, it's worked and 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 it's worked so much that it would, it would be easy to say, well, it's just going to drive us off a cliff. Like there's no way we'd be able to change this thing. Um, but it would also be very hard to imagine that single cells, when there is no such thing as a multicell organism, would be anything other than single cells. But phase changes in biology do occur. We are a part of biology. So it's irrational to say that a phase change couldn't occur with us because that's actually how systems work. So this is the ultimate phase change that we're at is as we approach this moment in time, that adaptive system of win-lose, which, which we, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you are the survivor of your ancestors who won the win-lose game. So we got, we're like the concentration of win-lose genetics, essentially, right? That, that's, a, that's a general statement, but it, it, it's, a, it's a valid statement. Okay, great. So that's kind of heavy and intense to think about that. Like we are the best at win-lose, okay? Um, <clears throat> but we're bringing that best of win-lose into a moment of time with nuclear warheads, with planetary ecological uh, catastrophes, with a rising human population, with um, the advent of exponential technologies, including AI. And if we, if we keep doing the win-lose thing, then it actually necessitates lose-lose. So we're a moment away from, we, we're actually in the moment where the adaptive survival psychotechnology is becoming a maladaptive psychotechnology liability. Mm -hmm. And so it's creating the perfect storm for us to actually do what we, and I say we, I mean, as life did in single cell to multi-cell and now do another phase change where we go from us versus them win lose programming that programs basically every single person on earth with very few exceptions of people who have really done the deep work of, of reprogramming themselves, but mm -hmm. collectively to go through this reprogramming process 
where we now adopt and proliferate the all-win program at the level of us as a humanity, right? The, a deep, deep, deep expression of be the change you wish to see in the world. What we want to see in the world is a world where everybody wins. We call that heaven on earth. We call that utopia. But if we still want some people to lose or we judge some people as wrong or stupid or bad or evil, then we haven't become that change yet. And the good news is, is we already have the psychotechnologies for all win. We don't have to invent them. Hmm. It just so happens that we apply all win thinking to whoever we call us. So in the tribe, if we call mm. these group us, then we apply all when thinking to them, right? If mm. you and your loved one, say your significant other are in a good relationship and there's a financial problem, you're considered the us. So you're like, okay, great. How do we get through this together, right? If there's like five children involved, there's a nuclear family, they're all the us. Okay, how do we get through this together? You're not just like, you know, <laughs> killing your, your seven-year-old daughter mm. to be able to have more food for the family. No, she's a part of the us group. And so we think all win. We want to come up with a creative solution that's not just good for half of the nuclear family, but works for everyone in the nuclear family. Why? Because that's who we've called us. Mm. So <clears throat> all that we have to do, which is relatively simple and profound at the same time, is wrap the boundary of who we call us so that everybody is on the inside of that boundary. All humans, all life, all future generations. And that's why we call this one nation because we want to wrap a boundary of who's the us so that everybody's on the inside of that. The new tribe is the planetary human family in relationship with all of ecology. Mm. And so now once we do that work, which is a work of courage to transcend our desires to judge and other some groups. But if we can get over that and if we can wrap that boundary around so that all are included inside that, then we effortlessly be begin applying all win to everybody and everything mm. when there's no mm. longer an other group to apply mm. the lose aspect of win lose to. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, to make this very practical, I thought maybe we could kind of, uh, noodle on a particularly d divisive political issue in America, like something that comes to mind is like gun control, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you have two sides who see things very differently. Uh, fighting in opposition, can't seem to make any decisions, you know, uh, very protracted battle going on in the political scene around this issue. How would we begin to, for instance, apply uh, all-win thinking in order to kind of transcend or resolve this uh, dilemma? Mm -hmm. So um, the one of the primary tactics of empire is to divide the uh, subjects of the empire and then help them to fight each other so that they're focused more on fighting each other um, and doing the win lose dynamic relative to each other than doing the, then looking up 
and seeing the way that their nation, their humanity, their ecology is being um, <clears throat> extracted. The wealth is being extracted from them. And so, so, so we do that as an American empire, just like any other empires have done it. Um, and the, the political narrative process is one of the best ways that we get the subjects of America, the citizens of America to fight each other. Right. And in other situations of empire, you know, we would, you know, the emperor, the empire would literally arm two sides of an, of an internal civil conflict and just let them fight each other. Cause as long as they're battling each other, then it's way easier to manage the whole thing. So the, the, the our version of that is arming both sides with warfare like political narratives. Mm -hmm. And so the issues that are most divisive a bowl based upon kind of human nature and, and some basic kind of value sets and um, um, mapping interests are the ones that get all of the attention. So you can actually track, you can look at, you can look at dozens of different political issues and the ones that actually split human perspective down the middle 50, 50, which include immigration, abortion, gun control, um, those are the ones that get all the media attention. So right. you see what I'm doing is, is through the media, we've made sure that the issues that are most polarizing are the issues that get the most amount of attention that then create the perception that half of the country is horrible for having an alternative perspective on this issue as I am. And therefore we are massively polarized as a country. Mm -hmm. But if you are otherwise, so, so if you start to apply the all win mentality, you don't start by looking at, at playing the game that a win lose paradigm has created for us, which is controlling the topics that we're thinking about in order to reinforce our division as a nation. You start to actually look more objectively at all of the issues that are impacting us and to what degrees and to what proportionalities. <clears throat> and when you do that, yada, 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 blah, 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 you start to realize that the distinctions between left and right Republicans and Democrats are a very small window. They just happen to focus on the issues that are most polarizing because it then it creates this really convenient perception and illusion of fundamental distinction between left and right. But if you, if you zoom all the way out, you see that the alignment of issues between the left and the right is massive 70, 80, 90, 95%, right? So, yeah. so how we pay for healthcare <laughs> is, is a very small thing mm -hmm. compared to how we do healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. So, so we do healthcare in a way that is um, a systematic approach towards degrading human health by exacerbating chronic disease through various interventions that systematically deteriorate a person's life while extracting the most amount of financial resource from that person so that they die with as little as possible to pass on their generation. As much of their wealth has been transferred to the health system and then private interest as possible. So, so that's how we do health, you know, um, and there's a lot of exceptions to that. Like we're good at like dealing with like 
accidents and injuries and stuff. But the vast majority of people that are in the health system are in the health system because of chronic diseases like heart disease and diabetes. And we, we do it in a, in a really, really horrible way. Okay. So that's a big deal. And that's impacting an order of magnitude of people more than the gun issue. You know, um, how many people do you know that have died from, from premature, from heart disease? Mm-hmm. versus that have died from a gun related issue. And every person's going to have a higher number for, for, for a premature death from heart disease. But then we just accept heart disease as like a normal part of life. But no, it's not. We can actually create a heart disease less society if we have the will to be able to do so. So why aren't we up in arms about the fact that we haven't created a heart disease and diabetes less society? Those are the types mm. of things we need to start to reappropriate our awareness on the things that are having the greatest amount of impact on people, regardless of their political affiliation, regardless of their religious views, regardless of their philosophical views. And, um, you know, how our health system operates, how our financial system operates, you know, debt, um, how our education system operates, all these systems are impacting everybody equally, but we're not looking at them because frankly, the existing ruling powers don't want us to be looking at those systems. They want us to be looking at the things that just have us fighting each other. So I'm not trying to um, um, avoid your question. We can actually get into that question directly in a second, but I need to expand the thinking that when we go into all win and we, then, then, it, then it demands that these things start to happen. First, we start to think for ourselves. So we've got these four principles of basically all win leadership. Principle number one is that you think for yourself and in thinking for yourself, you have to perceive how you've been manipulated and how ulterior interests have controlled what you're thinking about and how you're thinking about that is a way that you've been manipulated. And so we start to like, like Neo pulling himself out of the matrix. We start to pull out of our own brain, all the thoughts that have been intentionally planted inside of our own brains. Mm-hmm. So step number one is a sovereignty of thinking. So we have to think for ourselves. Step number two is once we're able to think for ourselves, then we have to be able to set that aside and see things from other perspectives. And so basically think Mm. from the vantage point of others. And this then gives us a more accurate and a more holistic understanding of any issue. And then once we have a more holistic understanding of the issue, then we can start to actually consider it holistically. So we can factor in more information, more nuances, more perspectives, more possibilities. And once we are in the holistic consideration of a thing, rather than a a, a political narrative warfare of a thing, then that unlocks a certain level of creativity and generativity where we can start Mm -hmm. to formulate all win experiments. And then we can start to run different experiments to figure out, okay, great. I I got like the 1.0 of this conversation where you want this and they want that. And this is the political narrative warfare. But when I go deeper, I understand these are your fears. And these are your desires and these are your fears and these are your desires and these are your fears and your desires. And then we use all of that and we take that to the metaphorical whiteboard and we start to formulate solutions that address the underlying fears and desires that exist in society that we have basically been told will be answered by us winning the gun issue or the abortion issue or the immigration issue. But, but, the, the, but that's not true. That, that's, 
That's, that's, a, that's a false conversation. These issues are deeper. These fears are deeper. These desires are deeper than any one of these issues. They will never be solved by any one issue being mm-hmm. solved well. And the issue itself will never be solved as long as we're fighting each other because we'll just keep yo-yoing the issue between, quote, the right and, quote, the left. Um, and so that's kind of, I guess, a starting point to the conversation. Yeah. And we can go into guns or abortion and start to talk about how we'd address those, but I wanted to kind of go more meta first. Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate that. And, and the, the the kind of um, metaphor that's coming to mind, right, is is something like what I hear you saying is that there's, if we think of our system as a kind of collective intelligence, right now it's kind of like a pathological and demented and totally. uh, yep. almost like suicidal collective yep. intelligence. Yep. That's right. right? Mm-hmm. And you're saying like, Look, the 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 the, um, the what that collective intelligence, that demented collective intelligence, wants is not even where we should be focusing the conversation. We need to first like heal that collective intelligence, mm-hmm. i.e., invoke new systems of choice making, sense making, decision making, and then from there, some of those uh, fractures, some of those decisions might not even feel that relevant anymore. It might actually be that we want to focus on something completely different. Yeah. Right. And I, like, even when I was saying like, what about gun control? In my mind, I was like, ugh, like right. I don't you're, even you're want to talk about it. that. Yeah. yeah. yeah totally. <laughs> it I, I, it's, it's like, you know, because the, the, this is also where the political discourse is. And to some degree, you know, I, I, I feel like one nation or I imagine one nation needs to be able to meet that. Right. Without because so here here's one of my concerns coming up in conversation. I imagine it's a concern that listeners might have. It's like what you're articulating is, I mean, compared to the mainstream political discourse, so much more complicated, so much more nuanced, so much more visionary than what's going on there. Is this what gives you the confidence that this is actually a message that America can even hear at this point in history? Well, there's, well, okay. So when you say America, right, that, that, that's an oversimplification, right? There's no such thing as America, right? There's just a whole bunch of people. Um, there are people that are ready for this, that are 100% ready for this. And that number of people is somewhere between hundreds of thousands and millions in America they don't need to be persuaded or convinced or they're just ready for it. And they're politically disengaged because this quality of conversation isn't on the table. And the quality of, of, of American political discourse is so gag worthy that they're disengaged. So step one is to wave the flag and say, Hey, everybody that's, that's wanting an all win conversation. Um, we're, we're getting together, uh, over in that corner, you know, meet us, meet us in that corner over there. Cause that's where we're congregating. Right. So yeah, right. that's step one is to just see how many people are actually ready. Right. When you look at the, there's a report that I looked at recently that showed that about 7% of Americans control the narrative on both sides. Right. So that basically means that 14% of Americans are controlling the narrative of left versus right. And then 86% of Americans are kind of on the inside being influenced by that narrative and, and kind of trying to like identify more with one side versus another side or say like, um, like I don't really, I don't, I am the anomaly 
But it seems like everybody else is so clear that here's the good guys and here's the bad guys and they're fighting each other, right? So, so some amount of that 86% of America is absolutely ready for a new political narrative, a new political, a new quality of political discourse. So we're, we're stepping out. Um, we have a, a major launch campaign of the party um, in 2020. We're calling our all win campaign. We're launching the party at a national scale. And the point, the point and purpose of that is to wave that flag and say, who's ready for all win politics. And there's actually a book called all win politics that we intend to come out early in the year. Um, and that's step one. And mm. what I imagine step two is, is the people that find that alignment, that coherence, that resonance. Um, a lot of those people are going to be influencers. They're going to be celebrities. They're going to be authors. They're going to be people that are, you know, um, developed their own influence in the world, their own audiences. Um, and then they will be able to translate. They'll be able to be the translators. And so the, the movie stars and the authors and the celebrities and the sports figures and so I mean, the people will be able to just kind of point to the new cool. And then if we've got a couple million Americans that are super hip with it, and, and a lot of those have influence, then we'll have the ability to shift what's cool. And I believe that we can make all win over the years to come the new cool and make win lose just really distasteful and really like <laughs> not cool anymore. Like go back to the fifties, like smoking was cool. Yeah. It was just cool. And all the doctors did it and everybody did it. Yeah. And today, like, it's just not cool anymore. Like a lot of people still smoke and I get that. But even the people that smoke, like they know it's not cool. Like everybody knows, like cats out of the bag, smoking's not cool. And so I, I think that we have the ability to shift that narrative, not because we see if America's ready for it or not, but because we aggregate those that are ready for it and then work together to create new media. Because we're gonna, yeah. we are the inheritors of the media industry. We're the inheritors of Hollywood. We are inheriting all these massive mechanisms, and we can use that inheritance to shift the narrative. And we're already seeing that, like movies that are coming out. You know, like I won't name any particular ones, but there's 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 movies that are coming that are so profound. You can realize there's people that are in Hollywood that are making movies that have these like it appears to be deeply benevolent intentions of waking us up through media. And so it's not like unprecedented that we can use media and shows and movies um, that yes, they can be used to reinforce consumerism, to reinforce division, to reinforce hate, to reinforce a lot of these things, but we can also use the media to be able to change the narrative around what's cool. And I think that when mm -hmm. lose is going out, it's not cool anymore. It's led to the <laughs> near destruction of all of human society, but that's not cool. That's not yeah. cool. But what is cool <laughs> And what's fun and what's joyful and what's creative is everybody finding their generative active leadership in the world that, that allows them to actually participate in life in a unique way and create value that's holistically integrated with everybody else who's creating value. And to me, that feels like a party. Like really, it feels like a fun party. And we call this the great American party, both as a playoff of the political frame, but like actual and even even parties aren't even that cool right like let's go and let's kind of drink some vodka and let's listen to some loud music that's so loud that we can't hear each other right so even like a party <laughs> itself like isn't that cool but it's the best we've got but like now imagine that that the new party both like 
both expressions of the word party merge a political party and a social party. They both jump an octave and they find each other. And now mm. the new party is we are working together as a renaissance of civic engagement. And what is most meaningful is also what is most relevant. And we are working together to be able to create the world's most exceptional society, leveraging the best of what we've learned over the last several hundred years of the industrial era, learning, implementing the best of our, of our, of our digital and social technologies and the best of our manufacturing capacities and creating an exceptional society that approaches the mythic orientation of heaven on earth. That sounds really cool. <laughs> and I also get that that could sound naive, but I actually believe that, that our rising generation of millennials, if we can do a good enough job of providing that leadership, we can wake them up from their very, very deep despair, help them go all the way through the grieving process. The world that they were born into is dying, mourn that death, and then introduce them to a new possibility. That feels cool. Mm. That feels like a party. That feels like the great American party, the great planetary party, the movement from one era to the next. Yeah, I actually love that answer. I, I think I even notice um, for me, like as I've gotten more into these kinds of ideas, it does feel like super distasteful when I like am working with somebody and they ex come from a place of like, hey, we can win at the expense of this other group or person. And I'm just kind of like, ooh. Ooh. Like, ooh. <laughs> ooh that's, that's not cool anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's not cool. That's not cool. Uh, yeah, interesting. That's a, I like that answer a lot. Yeah. Um, well, so, it's, so um, you know, one thing I can imagine uh, a lot of listeners to this podcast in particular thinking or coming from the perspective of is something like um, – as you say, you know, I acknowledge or we acknowledge the political system is broken. Why even try to fix it? Why not just build something in parallel? Why not try to like build a new governance system on the blockchain and just forget about it? Just, you know, mm -hmm. obsolete it because we, you know, just go build our, you know, our thing over here that is just so much better, obviously, and then everybody will switch or something like yeah, that. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, I hear that a lot. Um <clears throat> And I, and I, you know, kind of in jest, but, but also like, like really, I, I ask questions like, okay, what happens to nuclear warheads? So we've got this new blockchain solution. W w like when in that thought process, <laughs> do the people that are currently managing nuclear warheads hand over that management to the blockchain community? <laughs> You know, like that's just like that one hasn't fully like landed for me. Like same with like nuclear power plants, same with like bridge maintenance. Like, have you seen bridges? Like bridges are really big and they require maintenance. Um, like, like when in this theory of change does that transition happen? And mm. and I, I I actually care a lot about what happens with the nuclear warheads and with the bridges. Mm. So, so if other people are more devoted to the theory of change of like build the blockchain community and just like let this thing fall apart, then I'll say, right, you do that. Like I'm going to do the thing where, where we increase the probability we have wise stewardship over nuclear warheads and bridges while y'all are figuring that one out. Mm. So, so in that, mm. um, our tangible society is a billion times more complex than most people that would like 
roll out that narrative that you mentioned are, are really actually factoring for. And the existing government systems are, 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 are currently organizing public funds in a way that help to provide that level of management um, in a way that I don't want to go away anytime soon. And so I think that it's like, it's like the, 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 the caterpillar butterfly thing, right? The, 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 the new, the new imaginal cells, they don't emerge outside of the chrysalis. Hmm. They emerge from within the chrysalis. So yes, there's a new system that makes the old system obsolete, but it, but it, but it's birthed from the substrate of the existing system. Hmm. Right. And so that, that's like, we need to, we need to radically apply blockchain technologies and incorruptible open ledger technologies to how we run our cities, our states and our nation, how we manage our bridges and potentially our nuclear warheads and everything in between. And that's the only path. I mean, that's the only path that I think is is anywhere even remotely viable. Um, it is a strategy that, that that includes how we steward our governments and how we create new governance systems and structures. Uh, but again, it's like when you're kind of becoming more mature, it's easy to like polarize against dad, right? Like, oh my dad's a jerk and I'm never going to be like him. And so then you, you know, you run your life and you find out you actually turn up just like your dad. But <laughs> I think that the government's kind of like dad in this moment in time where like a young emerging blockchain technology is like, we don't need dad. Like we're good on our own. Um, but that polarizing process is then actually disconnecting those thinking that way from the creative capacity and, and the ingredient that government stewardship can play in a holistic transformation of society. So, so we just need to make sure that we're not othering anyone or othering anything and actually thinking holistically about how every sector of society is stewarded in order to help us move through the birth canal from one era of humanity to the next. Again, you look at the national stuff and you're like, Oh my God, with the, with the interest groups and the industries and the control that is, that is unbroachable to create like legitimate transformation in that. But if you go to a town or a city in Oklahoma with like 3000 people, then the degree to which that uh, ulterior motive power control manipulation is implementing it is, is, is relatively sparse, if negligible, if non-existent. So, so even, even like, even to oversimplify, right. You said like, you made the comment of if Americans ready and it kind of said, let's go into greater granularity. Like, you mean to say if our government system is broken, well, mm -hmm. that's an oversimplification. Like is the town of, of Maryville in Oklahoma broken? Is it really broken? Or can we elect a new mayor and leverage the $50 million budget of Maryville? I'm making up Maryville. Um, 
in Oklahoma to be able to start to um, regenerate our soil and help to provide a complete transformation on how we do child education and help to increase the depth of the political engagement of the citizens of Maryville and help to seed the all-win culture and the all-win paradigm of the 3,000 people in, Mary, in, in Maryville. Like, like what's mm. preventing all of that from occurring? Nothing. The only thing that's preventing from that from occurring is the oversimplification that the entire American government system is broken. That's the only thing that's preventing from occurring is because then we're not seeing what's actually possible. And this opens us up to be able to think about city councils, to be able to think about mayors, to be able to think about states and state representatives and governors, and to be able to think about these positions of sheriff. Like, like is, is, our, mili- is, our, is our police system broken because we do have mil- police brutality and because in some ways we've created a milita- militarized police that are, that are dis-enabling protesters from being able to speak their truth backed by state laws that make protesting uh, a felony. Yes, that's all true. But does it mean that we need to throw out every police officer and every sheriff and every police department because the things I just mentioned are true? No, not at all. So what does it mean for us to have the leadership of our police departments as we go through this transition? Like, like would it be more valuable to have our police departments aligned with supporting transformational all-win policy than for us to say, you're stupid, you're broken, you're the bad guys, you're wrong, we don't need you, we're going to go and do our own thing. And they're going to say, well, there's a couple of things that we know that you're going to probably need in that new utopic future that you're going to create. And the, and the fire department's like, yeah, there's some stuff that we know too that's important. you know. And like everybody's like, Everybody has a key. And so we need to become obsessed with thinking, how do we put everybody's best thing? How do we every system's best thing? The light side of the government, the light side of the city, county, of the county, the light side of all the civil servants, and, 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 and use that with a higher level of consciousness to be able to solve for the shadow side transcend and include all the light side and then bring everything together as one nation um, in order to birth what's coming next to put those blockchain governance innovators in a room with a nurse and a firefighter and a mayor and a judge and say, okay, what matters to all of us here together? What can we all learn from each other? What do we not already know that somebody else in this room knows? And, and the answers to utopia are going to be found in the intersection of the diversity, which has to include, it has to require that no groups are excluded, like civil mm. servants or elected leaders, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, I think the final thing I'd love to hear your thoughts on is, um, you know, one of the inquiries that this podcast has been on is around this topic of collapse. I know that you listened to my interview with Vinay Gupta mm-hmm. and, you know, one other concern I can imagine people having and something that I wonder about too is, is, you know, depending on the kind of time horizon that you see collapse potentially happening on, right? And some people put it as soon as six, seven, 
12 years, do we really have the time to refactor all the systems that make up our government and our society in the way that you're speaking about? And and therefore, wouldn't it be better to kind of just shore up your own community, you know, focus on hyper-local organizing, things like that? Uh, Yeah. How do you kind of navigate that concern or that that possible perspective? Yeah, I don't... I think that if collapse happens at the scale that we're talking about, um, there's no one group that has like enough food and enough guns and high enough walls that that's going to actually be able to experience resilience in a vacuum. So I just, I just really think it's kind of all or nothing. You know, I, I, I think that the, the theory of change that I'm devoted to is that narrow window of a possibility that we actually use these collapse systems, destruction, transformational moments in time to help to fuel a planetary renaissance of civic engagement. Um, Mm. So that's the theory of change that I'm devoted to and that One Nation is devoted to. And there's, um, I won't go into great detail here, but there's, um, so, so, so some people think that, um, there was kind of some really deep, dark stuff behind nine 11, for example, right? Like it wasn't the current narrative of nine 11 isn't maybe exactly what happened, if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and so there's people that are holding a lot of this information that want to reveal this in a very big way. But, um, in communication and some of them it's been revealed that that they're waiting for that big um reveal which which will be kind of one of the the biggest reveals of uh, of our time um until there is paths of generativity in place so that the chaos Mm. ensued from that type of clarity um is able to translate into activation energy towards upgrading our society uh, by, by waking us up. Right. But if we don't have those, those generative channels in place, then all the chaos and the fear, it can't be transition. It can't be translated into generativity. It just translates into chaos and destruction and us killing each other. So, so my, 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 my commitment, my devotion, my theory of change of one nation is that this is like a channel. It's a channel of pure generativity. It's a place where we can step into our own empowerment, our own leadership and participation in the world, our own sense of dignity that we can play a role that all uh, that the dignity of all other people, that everyone can play a role. Um, the, the formation and writing of new policies that would create fundamental societal transformations like all things generativity so that as the cookie starts to really crumble, that we increase the probability that that energy that's activated through various forms of disclosure or various forms of, of, of felt and experienced collapse have a, have a, have a channel of generativity to then funnel into. If we wake up, from the, from our, from being asleep at the wheel, then 
is there a steering wheel there that we can then grab? Right? Mm -hmm. Or are we waking up having fallen asleep at the wheel? And then we wake up and we realize we're in on the freeway and there's no steering wheel. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, so, so I don't know that it's going to work, but I want to increase the probability that there's a steering wheel in place that as more and more people wake up, they could grab that steering wheel and steer and drive us towards the best scenario possible. Nice. Yeah. 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 And Barbara Marks Hubbard, you know, she, the late Barbara Marks Hubbard, who's also a very close friend and mentor. She's been saying this for years. She's been saying that the great synarchy, the great synergistic democracy, everybody rising kind of simultaneously in their self-appointed generativity will occur at the moment where everything is the most chaotic, destructive, and collapsing. And so mm. this has been predicted, you know, for decades. Um, mm. And I'm banking, I'm, I'm simultaneously banking on that scenario while also not creating any unnecessary vulnerabilities for alternative scenarios, because even if we do have massive, massive collapse, I think we're still benefited by having uh, a group of several millions of, of people that de are devoted to all win that have identified each other that mm -hmm. can, even in that state space with our kind of, you know, solar panels and ham radios and three bean seeds to plant as like the future agriculture of humanity that like will at least have identified each other and can then increase the probability of resilience in the absolute worst case scenarios as well. So I feel like regardless mm. of which path you go, it's not like I'm not banking on the, we can pull up before this thing destroys at the cost of increased, of, of, of creating increased vulnerability for myself or anyone else. I think that the very process mm. of creating increased resilience for the worst case scenarios is simultaneously the same path of creating the most generative utopic possibility as well simultaneously. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Cool. Well, so I suppose at this point, I, I, I just want to ask, you know, you, you said that, uh, you know, soon in the not too distant future, you're going to be running the public national launch campaign of one nation, uh, for folks who are listening and are intrigued, like what's the next step, uh, to get into deeper relationship with the project? Yeah. So we've got a very simple landing page, um, depending on when this is released, we actually might have our new website up by then. But if you go to onenation.party, there's a place to opt in and joining the email list and starting to get on our weekly communications is definitely step one. And then step two for people that are really enthusiastic, want to get more involved, then you can actually register as a member of the party. And then once you re register as a member, um, there's a, a, a modest amount that you financially support the party. And then you're invited to all different uh, aspects of engagement, like being a part of local chapters or bringing your leadership forward, um, being a part of our online forums and um, kind of a growing list of affordances that our members have. Um, so registering as a member would be a very natural next step. And if you feel moved and inspired by the things you've heard today, I, I encourage you to at least opt into our email list or just follow that all the way through to registering. Um, and then from the position of registered members with each month that goes by, there'll be deeper invitations for organization, for organizing, um, getting involved, helping to do the own personal development work while also simultaneously 
forming organizing cells to do social transformation work um, at a really nuts and bolts level. So, and then also, you know, ultimately organizing to find out like who are our next generation of mayors, you know, and there's a lot of people who feel a deep sense of leadership. And currently the narrative that I think that our greater community is providing is that entrepreneurship is the path to leadership in the world. And I want to provide an additional, you know, an additional narrative that running a city is also a great expression of leadership, right? There's a lot of people mm-hmm. that are, that, that say something along the lines of, you know, I'm so um, creative and generative and I've got so much to offer that I should receive some universal basic income so I can just work full time on making the world a better place. And I say like, yeah, kick that into uh, the next gear and just become a mayor. And there's your income. There's your salary. It's right there. Yeah. You want public benefit or public money so you can work full time in service. There it is. There's all kinds of these elected positions for your taking. Just get generative. And, 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 and the One Nation platform is a platform whereby this whole new generation with this whole new political paradigm can, can say, I'm going to step up. And now we've got a membership base to help to provide organization capacities for the campaigns. There's a growing voting base. There's a, there's a growing uh, farm school to pull our new generation of leaders from. And then the cool thing is, is every single campaign, every mayoral campaign, every governor campaign, every state rep campaign is simultaneously helping to initiate those constituencies into the all-win paradigm, Mm. as well as increasing the probability that the all-win paradigm occupies that elected seat of office. So there's not even, you don't even lose just by running a campaign that intrinsically builds the network, builds the party, builds the paradigm, Mm. builds the message, builds the narrative. And so you see, it's just like, it's all generativity everywhere you look. Mm. And uh, anyways, it's kind of a long answer, but, but the ultimate expression of saying yes is to actually become a leader and a face and an influencer and potentially even a candidate on the, on the One Nation platform in 2020 uh, or beyond.